Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I like to think. If I didn't, this would be the wrong job for me. But I realize that as open-minded as I like to consider myself, I've taken a thick black sharpie to certain areas of the philosophical map, scrawling, here there be monsters, and mostly leaving them be. We're all like this to some extent. It's the flip side of interest. Even if you're super curious, the things that interest you most become safe spaces, comfort zones. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to keep learning, it's necessary to spend time in regions of reality that scare the crap out of you, the things you don't want to look at. And if, like me, your unsafe spaces include the many catastrophes that could befall the human race, you couldn't ask for a more affable, well-informed tour guide than Josh Clark. Trained in history and anthropology, Josh is a writer and a podcaster. He's the host of Stuff You Should Know and now The End of the World, a 10-part series that looks at the many ways humanity might go extinct and what we can do about them and why it's all worth taking very, very seriously. Welcome to Think Again, Josh. Thank you, Jason. It's an honor to be here. I want to approach the end of the world asymptotically. I don't, I don't want to dive right in just mm-hmm. yet. In your show, Stuff You Should Know, mm-hmm. how long have you been doing it? Uh, uh, coming up on 11 years in April. Ah, yeah. 11 years? 11 years like before, podcasting. Before anyone knew what a podcast was. We spent the first like four or five years, you know, when someone asked what we did, we had to explain what that was right. for a while. And um, by the time we figured out, okay, we've got it. It's kind of like a talk radio show, but rather than tuning in to a certain dial um, at a certain time to hear it, you can just go on the internet and download it and listen to it anytime. By the time we finally articulated this, Serial came along and then everybody knew what a podcast was. So right. It was all for naught anyway. But it was a major pain in the ass back then. People had to go to the internet, get the MP3 or something. Sure, yeah, yeah. Or the, like sit there on their computer, maybe streaming it. Yeah, and basically the only option you had was iTunes. It was definitely serving the purpose. It was like the place you knew where to go if you wanted to, to listen to podcasts, but it was still very niche um, for most people. And right. it's just kind of spread and become much more mainstream, which is great. And it doesn't seem like it would be such a complicated concept to explain, but it still is for many people, <laughs> even even with the apps ubiquitously available. I almost got the impression that it was almost like a willful, like a what, a what cast or a pod what, you know, <laughs> they just kind of tear call this newfangled thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Need that. but it made it all the more sweeter when you met a Stuff You Should Know fan because they were a real fan. They had sought you out, they heard about you, they went and they started listening and they were like interested in, in talking to you and hearing what you had to say. So what I love about stuff you should know is that, let me see if I can remember a random smattering of the topics you've covered. Ayahuasca, elephants, pterosaurs, Mm -hmm. um, attorney-client privilege. Mm -hmm. It is as eclectic as it gets. You are all over the map in Mm -hmm. terms of looking at and talking about anything and everything. First of all, how do you guys decide what to talk about? How do you navigate all that there is and what deem what is worth talking about? So we figured out a long time ago, everything's worth talking about. You know, like there's something interesting to every topic. Like we did an episode on grass once, Mm. like grass. (laughs) <laughs> Not pot. We did an episode on pot. I just mean plain old grass. Right. And it turns out there's some interesting stuff to grass. You know, like everything when you dig into it has some weird thing you didn't know about it. Or once you learn about how it actually works or how it grows or how it how it's impacted history or culture or something like that, it becomes much, much more interesting. I caveat that with the exception of um, jackhammers. <laughs> jackhammers 
that was a, that was so just a patently bad episode. And I think that I would say that was about it. We recorded one episode once on uh, pet detectives, and it was so long ago that I can't remember if it was people who are detectives, like who look for pets, like Ace Ventura, or if it's pets who act as detectives themselves. Can't remember. Okay, <laughs> but it was so bad that after we finished recording, uh, my co-host Chuck and I looked at each other across the table and we're like, we can't release this. Like, it is too, it's just too bad. The episode and, and was too And what was bad. bad about these things is that they dead end it. They it, just somehow were the only things in the universe that aren't interesting. Pretty much, pretty much, them. yeah. So we actually, we have this episode under glass. Like if you ever hear how Pet Detectives works come out, it means one of us like broke a leg in a skiing accident or something <laughs> happened to where we couldn't get to record that week. What are some of the most interesting and valuable things that you've learned? Maybe pick one or two. Mm -hmm. I mean, are there, have there been areas that you've found, you know, time and time again, value in coming back to? Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, has really kind of emerged and kudos on your research, but that I was, I studied history and anthropology. And um, when I was in college, I just went and sought those things out because they interested me. I've always been like a writer and I knew that they were kind of writing intensive mm -hmm. uh, fields of study. So I went and looked them up in college. Well, I didn't realize that that was already part of my worldview, but also kind of being trained in those disciplines shaped my worldview. So now everything I approach, at least as far as the podcast is concerned, is through the lens of like, what's the history of this? Or mm. how has this affected history? How has it affected culture? Like really comes through to me when I'm researching topics for the podcast. And one of the ways that it really struck me most plainly was when we were researching the Enlightenment, which I knew some about, you know, this, the 18th century movement that kind of shaped liberalism here in the, in the West and asserted rationality for the first time, you know? Right. What I was struck by is that this emergence of rationalism in the face of, you know, superstition and belief and, and saying like, no, we can figure out the entire universe if we apply science to it. This push and pull that was going on as the Enlightenment was playing mm. out is still very much going on today. It was one of the most important things I've learned in the last 11 years of doing Stuff You Should Know, that there's still a huge struggle between rationalism and belief. And as one kind of pulls ahead, it stumbles and, and oversteps its bounds, and the other one gets to kind of move forward. Right, and there's, right. it's this weird kind of, rather than a tug of war, more a horse race. And I'm not quite sure what the finish line is. And maybe maybe ideally the finish line is a mixture of both where they can coexist in harmony. But it feels a lot like there's a zero-sum race going on between the two right now. And that's it's as pronounced, if not more pronounced, than it was even in the 18th century. It comes up sometimes in this show in the context of that old essay by C.P. Snow about the two cultures mm -hmm. where, you know, I don't know, 1930s or something where, where basically he was asserting that there was a widening gap mm -hmm. between the humanities on the one hand and the sciences on the other. Right. And I talked to a lot of writers and you know literature people, and I think a lot about how our pursuit of knowledge, for me anyway, it, it feels that it has to be informed with wisdom, with heart, with some yeah. something other than just fact fetishism. I agree, and I think. Um you know, one of the other things that I've come across too in my research is that a lot of people point to World War One as proof positive that you can't just rely on science. You have to have heart, right. or else like this is the cumulative result that will eventually 
invent our way, we'll science our way into our own destruction. And that actually very much plays into the end of the world and the, th the theme of that, the podcast that I made. Let's start talking about the end of the world. So I've heard and read about a number of the existential threats that you talk about mm -hmm. in the show from AI, from particle physics, from nanobots, any number of ways, and, and then natural threats as well that mm -hmm. could destroy us. My first reaction, like I think many people's, is often, as I was saying at the outset of the show, to sort of like hide my head in the sand. Obviously, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I guess what I worry is that if I go there, then I'll get stuck there. Then that's basically mm -hmm. the only thing that you can think about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of expected that myself, you know, that I was like, well, this is, this is my life from now on. I've got a, I've got to battle the existential risks that are coming our way and wake everybody up. And that's definitely true to an extent. Like I have taken that on as a um, bit of a personal quest, but it's not all consuming. I think that that fear is understandable, but Having gone through this grinder, I can tell you that you don't just necessarily live in fear. One of the things that I found was really surprising, and I've heard from people who listen to the, the podcast as well, a weird arousal of hopefulness mm. that I, I was very surprised arrived as I did this research and as I learned more and more about this stuff, as I was learning about humanity's possible doom, I actually became more hopeful huh. because there's a uh, tremendous yeah, amount of hope in the idea that we could actually do this. Like we're not, our fate is not sealed. That's I think a real key to understanding the whole thing. Like there are things that we can do about this to avert future disaster that brings about the extinction of humanity. And of course, each of the potential disasters is different, has a different kind of probability sure. level and a different cause and therefore would require different solutions to De yes, avert it. Exactly. The thing that kind of binds them all together is that they're suddenly popping up in our near future and they're popping up in the form of the technology that we're starting to develop today. Right. It's also not a given that AI is going to take over the world. It's not a given that a genetically altered virus is going to escape the lab and kill 100% of humanity. These things aren't givens. That's not the point. The point about thinking about existential risks is that it's possible. And they also call existential risks low probability, high consequence risks, where yes, it is kind of remote that this could actually happen. We're not even entirely certain that it could happen, but it's possible. And if something like this does happen, the consequences are so massive, so enormous that they're worth thinking about. They're worth studying. They're worth analyzing. So and yeah, they are different. AI is different. A catastrophe from AI would look totally different from a catastrophe from an altered virus, but they still require the same thing, which is thinking about these things, investigating them, learning about them, wading into them so that we can figure out if they do pose existential risks. And if they do, the, the safest way forward to this point in the um, future of humanity that is called the technological maturity. The technological maturity. Or just technological maturity. It's a point where we've mastered, invented and mastered all the basic technology, let's say, that will ensure humanity's survival indefinitely. This is a theoretical concept that there could be such a point. Right. It sounds kind of far out. It sounds kind of sci-fi. But if you step back and think about 
about the components of it. What it's ultimately saying is that it's asserting faith in human ingenuity and technology's ability to deliver us from just about every problem we could face, mm. especially the threat of, say, extinction, extinction brought about by ourselves. So the very technology gotcha. that's posing existential risks to us today could deliver us from any future existential risks once we reach the point where we have mastered them safely. But the point in between now and then is appearing to uh, add up to be the most dangerous period in the history of humanity. Right. There are a lot of risks, and many of them are coming from the fact that people, number one, don't have a shared understanding of these risks, and number two, don't have shared values necessarily. I mean, there's lots of short-term interests. You mentioned money. There's a lot of reasons why people would recklessly pursue a course of action right. that poses a threat maybe after I'm dead kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. My <laughs> wife raised a really good question. She's like, at what point do your family, your children, your descendants would stop being your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren? When do they become like faceless people that you just stop caring about? Right. Let's say somewhere around like maybe great-grandchildren, they start to get hazy enough and in the future <laughs> enough that you're like, okay, this... I don't really feel related to those people anymore. And that's a real problem because with existential risks, they're not necessarily going to befall us now, those right. of us alive today. Right. But if those of us alive today don't start addressing them, they very well will befall the people who are a generation or two out from now. Well, it's also just really easy to compartmentalize mm -hmm. low probability events, yes. right? And that's to say, well, problem. it's low probability. So probably not going to happen. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I, uh, I point out in the, uh, in the podcast that we play Powerball right? Powerball is a very low probability event. And right. yet people go every week to buy tickets to try to win that um, multi-million dollar jackpot. And I think that really kind of reveals something about us. It shows an optimism bias. Like we're saying something really remote, but that's good could happen to me. But with existential risks, something that's really remote, but is negative, that we don't need to even think about that. When I look around and see what people are doing in the world, like for example, I talked with Jennifer Doudna, the geneticist, a while back, you know, about CRISPR-9 technology, mm -hmm. gene editing technology, mm -hmm. right when her lab had made significant strides there and she was freaking out, basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and was like, you know, woke up like, holy shit, where are we going with this? Yeah. And started running around trying to kind of create a global ethical committee on this stuff. And now we see, you know, in China, mm -hmm. that researcher has come out and he's been condemned by some colleagues and whatever, but we see that not everyone is on the same page. And so then in a lot of cases, I guess, with these risks, we have to think in terms of containment right. as well, not just pro prophylactically, but, you know. Right. One of the problems I think that make existential risks more pronounced is there's this idea among a lot of people in scientific fields that there's no such thing as too much knowledge. There's no such thing as, as, mm. as going too far. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I, I, I'm not afraid of knowledge. I don't think knowledge is bad or anything like that. And I respect science and revere science. I think science is going to get us to uh, an amazing future if we can survive that far. But I do think that there is such a thing as dangerous science. And that's kind of like the basis of thinking about existential risks. If you think about CRISPR-Cas9 or even um, the first nuclear detonation was considered an existential risk because we weren't sure it wasn't going to blow up the atmosphere. Right. Like we are developing technology that if you couple it with our propensity to just think everything will work out, uh, we're going to end up blowing ourselves up. And by blowing ourselves up, I don't mean, you know, a couple of people are going to die and we'll say, oh, we shouldn't do that again. 
the thing that differentiates existential risks from every other risk that we faced is if one thing goes wrong, if one catastrophe befalls us, that's it. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. And humanity as a whole has either been driven to extinction or has fallen so far from its place in history, we can never hope to regain that status again. Oh, that's very interesting, though, what you're saying about sort of the inexorable momentum of knowledge, this idea, especially among scientists, that we're just going to move forward, we're going to investigate, we're going to find, and that's what's going to happen, right. and that's inevitable. Yeah. No one should check that. No one should stop that. When you look back at history, it's very easy to be cynical and say, well, we don't have a very good history of morally containing things that are morally suspect. Right. I mean, agreeing on some ethical framework on the basis of which to proceed. And it's maybe possibly as the number of existential risks accumulates and as knowledge about them spreads, mm -hmm. like through your podcast, mm -hmm. maybe, hopefully, that is possible, that we come to some, some shared ethical framework that enables us to proceed more cautiously. Ultimately, that is, that is the <laughs> hope because you really hit the nail on the head. It has to be like a shared moral framework, right? I don't know that you can contain knowledge. I don't think that that's the point. I was reading this paper by Nick Bostrom. He came out with a working paper called the Vulnerable World Hypothesis. And I want to jump in here and say that a lot of the people that you speak to for this show are from the Institute for the Future of Humanity yeah, the at future, Oxford. Future of Humanity Institute, led future. by Bostrom okay. yeah, over right. there. The series is based largely on, on his ideas and the FHI's ideas and a lot of the papers they've written. And he's kind of known as the founder of the field of existential risk analysis and mitigation, and rightfully so. He was and the first one to really kind of draw these disparate ideas together into a, a comprehensive philosophy about existential risk. And people will maybe also be familiar with the paper that I think like he and maybe Bill Gates and Elon Musk, there was some... About autonomous AI. Right, the dangers of autonomous AI. Right, right? Yeah. They all signed it. Autonomous weapons in, in particular, yeah, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> I mean, just, <laughs> just giving a, a dangerous weapon the ability to shoot itself is just one um, of the um, worst um, ideas one of the low lights of human history. Yeah, <laughs> not, not a good one. So uh, it doesn't take a lot of moxie or thought to sign on to something <laughs> like that. But yeah, it would make sense that Bostrom would sign that. And I think, I'm not sure who came up with that, but there's another group called the Future of Life Institute, Okay. Uh, founded by uh, the physicist Max Tegmark. And uh, yeah, yeah. they may have come up with that petition. They may have started that petition. I know, I know they're big time into it, banning autonomous weapons. That's another example. We can see down the line, like, oh, okay, we're big time into war. We love war. We're also big time into coming up with AI. Let's put the two together. Why not? Like, this I is just, how knowledge works. But this is where I get so pissed off because I feel like the history of humanity is the history of people like you and Max Tegmark and other people, you know, and, and me coming along and saying, we need to think about this stuff. We need to be careful with this stuff. And other people being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, right now we need a <laughs> or we need to make some money. Like, what are you going to do? Slow down the global economy? Whoa there, buddy. Yeah, and then the voices of caution and the voices of progress for the sake of money or mm -hmm. anarchic knowledge for its own sake sure. or whatever, whatever, yeah. are two different sets of voices right. often. If I think frustration is a pretty reasonable <laughs> response to that. When I was creating the podcast, the first two-thirds of the process, I was very despondent. Like, I came to the conclusion, like, we're, we're, we're toast. <laughs> There's nothing. I know humans. I know humans. 
and we are not going to make it through this. <laughs> We've never faced a challenge like this before. What it requires of us is to think differently, to organize like we never have been, to really uh, basically apply ourselves as a species to taking on a risk that most of us aren't even taking seriously or even know about right now. I was like, we're toast. I think it would have been a much different series had I not talked to in particular, a philosopher named Toby Ord, right. who's also at the Future of Humanity Institute. And he is writing a book right now that's going to be a trade book for you know the average person to read about the history of thinking about existential risks, like everything there is to know about X risks. I'm so excited about this book coming out. And he has concluded after a decade or so of thinking about existential risks that there's reason to be hopeful, that there are glimmers of humanity showing that we have what it takes, that we can do this, that we can take this on. And he points to the animal rights movement. He points to environmentalism and the environmental movement and makes the case that in the early 60s, no one was thinking about the environment. And by the early 70s, all over the world, you could find federal agencies, government agencies that were dedicated to protecting the environment. Right. And like less than 10 years that happened. And it was just from some very smart people coming along and saying, hey, everybody, we need to pay attention to this, being called crackpots. They were coming from the fringes. And then more and more people starting to pay attention and say, wait, 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 this actually makes sense. And something that seemed crackpot and fringy all of a sudden became obvious to everybody. And so we started to do something. And obviously it's not a perfect, we, haven't, we don't have a perfect record of flipping a switch and all of a sudden being environmental stewards or recognizing the rights of non-human sentient animals. But there's been enormous progress in the last 50 years sure. along those two tracks. And you can even understand some of the dismaying backlash as protection of self-interest, of sure. course, of business mm -hmm. and so forth. It's hard to understand the, to see the arc of history when you're inside it. Yes. But these, you know, we could be witnessing the sort of, you know, with Trump and others, the spasms of the death throes mm -hmm. of the reaction to the fact that something needs to be done. Sure, yeah, you know? it's like it's just it's just part of the process. It's part of the working this out. And yeah. if that is the case, then that's good because you would guess that that's one of the last spasms <laughs> uh, before you kind of shake it off and go along the path that you're supposed to. It, it feels like if you just step back and look at how humans view uh, environmentalism, Right. And the idea that humans are stewards of the environment and it's up to us to take care of the environment. Right. Because we've kind of messed it up to this point. So we need to stop doing that and then try to figure out how to mitigate the damage we've already done. That is a very popular idea. And it crosses genders. Mm. It crosses races. It crosses all sorts of demographics that people have come to feel that way. And I think that is how change happens. Enough people see something the same way that you reach a, a tipping point, to quote Malcolm Gladwell, where change just occurs. It's right. just, there's just too many people to hold it back at that point. And it's, it, it could come from a movement, it could come from agitation, or it just could come from sheer numbers, from just this is how we're doing things now. Right. And the more easy you make it for people to live that way, like you make it easy for people to recycle by giving them recycling bins and teaching them how to do it and then having people come pick it up, that kind of thing. The easier you do, the more people uh, are going to subscribe to that kind of thing. And then just 
the mass of that number just kind of moves the needle forward. Sure. And it's just even corporate America can't overcome it, you know? Uh, you know, to put an asterisk to the tipping point idea, this is just basic how humans learn things, we sometimes have to relearn them as well. Yes. So one would have thought that the rise of fascism in the West in the early and mid 20th century would have, you know, in the reaction that in the aftermath of that, we had learned a lesson about liberty, democracy, right. the individual rights. And there was certainly progress on that scale, but we also, we also do see a contraction in various countries right now back in in that other direction. So we may have to relearn these right. lessons more than once. We did learn it the first time. We just forgot. Yeah. You know, it yeah, wasn't that's what kept I mean. up. I that's you know what I mean? mean. Like, yeah, it yeah. wasn't like, you know, you very rarely saw anybody, especially after the Cold War, saying like, careful about fascism. Just, just remember, <laughs> you know, like right, you don't right. see that written on a bathroom wall anywhere. We just forgot. And so enough people were born that hadn't been kind of inculcated into that mentality of like fascism bad. <laughs> right. Tear it up by the roots wherever you see it, that it's been able to kind of regrow a little bit. And so, yeah, we are doomed to repeat that. It's like if you forget history, you have to you know, have to revisit history. And, and but as we learn, every time we learn, we do learn something the first time, mm -hmm. we then have a kind of cognitive model of what mm -hmm. that feels like. So yes. we can go back to that. Like it's easier to learn it yeah. the second time to and remember it. And we can also look and say like, oh, okay, if we don't, if we don't handle this now, what's, what's going to be down the road? Oh, World War II and the Holocaust? Maybe right. we should handle this now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so it is still there and we did still learn it once. So yeah, it's easier to kind of get back to. The problem um, with existential risks is, and this is what separates them from every other type of risk, including something like dealing with fascism and the outcomes of fascism, we don't get a do-over. There's no right, second chance. Right, we right. don't get to learn through trial and error, which <clears throat> is really hard for us because that's how we learn. We learn by, like, we learn not to eat certain types of poisonous mushrooms by walking around in hunter-gatherer bands, and one of us picked it up and ate it and started frothing at the mouth and fell over dead, and the rest of the group said, okay, we steer clear of these mushrooms, and we spread that knowledge. Right. There's always been enough humans left over to keep the species going, even in the face of some of us dying along the way so that others could learn what not to do. Right. That that's how we've basically learned about the world to this point. But with existential risks, this is what makes them so dangerous. This is what makes them so different. They don't follow that model. We have to figure them out before they happen, because if they happen, there won't be any humans left to learn from that. As I, I put it in the podcast, I think there's no going back to the drawing board because either the drawing board will be vaporized or there won't be any <laughs> humans left to read the drawing board. We're all experiential learners to a great extent, and we all have to get on board with the theoretical and imaginative mm -hmm. project of mm -hmm. seeing these probabilities clearly and the consequences. And I think project's a really important word too. Like remember I said that there is a lot of hopefulness to this, to taking this on. One of the promises of dealing with existential risks, of humanity coming together and being like, oh man, we're not gonna be around in a couple of centuries if we don't do something about this now, is it would be a global species-wide project that mm. we were all coming together on. Cause that's what right. it requires. It requires that level, level of coordination. 
And if we did that, what effects would that have on our species? It could be a corner that we could turn. So we're not so warlike. We're not so tribal. We're much more harmonious. We have a model to look at each other as, oh, wow, we work together on that. What else can we do? It ought to, yeah, it ought to affect the way we think about the here and now and our understanding of what we value you aren't right. in humanity. Yeah, it's kind of like the space race in America, the race to the moon. It was an enormous gamble to say that we were going to do this in 10 years. It was very smart for Kennedy to do it like that because it put a, a almost impossible time constraint and really said, get to it. We can do this. When we actually made it to the moon, everyone in America had a sense of shared pride, like we had done this. Imagine if we had a project that was a, even more vital than getting to the moon, that not just all of America or all of the West came together to see through, but every human alive had a stake in like that, that felt that sense of pride when we overcame our existential risks as a global human project. What kind of impacts could that have? Opportunities like this don't come along for a species very often, and this is what we're facing. And it's really stark to see the choice is possible extinction or possible change for the better for our species. And what's nice about that as a galvanizing force is that unlike World War II or being attacked by aliens from outer space, mm -hmm. we don't need an enemy to kill. Yeah, the enemy <laughs> is to bring us together. The enemy's extinction <laughs> right, in this right. case, which everybody can get behind yeah. extinction being the enemy. That's fine. <laughs> or even the space race. Like the reason we wanted to get to the moon so quickly was because we were fighting the Ruskies, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Like it was adversarial. This is the opposite of adversarial. The mm. adversary is is extinction. The impacts it could have on our species. We just don't have opportunities opportunities like this very often. It's very exciting. That's what gives me hope about the whole thing. Yeah, you have somehow impossibly managed to infect me with optimism about the end of the world. That Josh is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I would not have thought it possible. <laughs> <laughs> now let's do something you're used to doing in your shows. Let's completely change gears okay. and go to the second part of the show, which is where we've got surprise conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives. Okay. We're going to watch each one and go where the conversation takes us. Okay, great. All right? Yeah. Okay. So this first one is with Big Think's beloved, often resident astronomer, Michelle Thaler. She's great. And this video is called, so it's, I guess, a question sent in by a viewer named Guido. Hi, Michelle. How do space toilets work? <laughs> fun question is that when astronauts are in space, they're not experiencing gravity. So how does digestion work? We sort of think of food moving down in our bodies. It seems that maybe gravity would have something to do with that. The amazing thing is it really doesn't. And this was one of the first things we discovered when we sent animals first and then people up into space. Some people wondered if you could swallow, if you could digest it all without the force of gravity. And it turns out that the act of peristalsis, the way your throat and your intestines squeeze themselves, will actually move food and water through your digestive system without gravity at all. And you can even test that with people lying in hospital beds. When you think about somebody that's actually lying down, there's no force of gravity that's pulling food in one direction or another. The human body is actually pretty good at moving food through without the force of gravity. Now, another part of this is what happens when the food comes out the other end, because this is a natural thing that all humans do every day. Well, you've now reached the wonderful science of space toilets. They actually act with suction. 
Now, if you've ever been to the dentist's office, the dentist is one you just spit, and he holds up a little cup with a tube attached to it, and there's suction that takes the water down the tube. A space toilet acts very much that way. There's suction, there's a current of air that actually draws the waste down so it can be disposed of. And honestly, sometimes it doesn't work perfectly. This is one of the things that astronauts have to deal with. When you think about the word floater, that has happened, where something escapes and you need to go get it. Uh, some of the uh, worst parts of human spaceflight in the very early days, like in Gemini, you know, all the way back in the 1960s, was people would collect their urine in a little plastic bag, and sometimes they broke. So there have been some people up there in some very bad circumstances. Today, the toilet on the space station works very well, and suction brings everything down, and the best thing I can compare it to is the dentist's spit cup. They actually have a little video camera, um, so you can see if anything's like floating around in, in the toilet before you get up. You started this conversation by saying that there is no area of knowledge that, if you pursue it, doesn't yield something sure. broader. I don't think there's anything that Michelle Thaler doesn't know. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. First. So watching that, one of the things I was reminded of is she mentioned how we see the ability to digest and like process food that we eat in hospital beds, right? Right. And that there's this kind of cross-pollination between the experiments we conduct in space and the stuff back here on Earth. One of the things that I ran across with existential risks, almost to a, a researcher, almost to a person, was that one of the ways to make sure that humanity has a future is if we get off of Earth as soon as possible. Right. And get out into space. And it's this kind of almost grindingly slow process that we're seeing now that will get us there. Experiments like, will we be able to digest food sure. in space in lower zero gravity? I don't know, let's shoot people in space and find out. That's kind of the way that we've explored space up to this point. And as we've kind of conducted these experiments just by going out and trying them, we've learned more and more. And we, one of the things that we have learned is that we have an enormous amount of challenges in getting to the point where we can basically get off of Earth and colonize space. So that's basically the point that we're at is now we know we have a ton of challenges, not necessarily what direction to go, just that we have a lot of stuff to work out. Creating atmospheres. Even stuff is low level is like, how are we going to grow food? Can yeah. we reproduce? Like, how are we going to figure out if we actually can reproduce in space? Based on history, I'm guessing that we're going to go try it in the next 50 or 100 years. I felt like, Matt Damon solved some of those problems for us in The Martian. <laughs> sure, he did. Yeah. Who has a question? <laughs> <laughs> so getting off of the planet is essential to our survival, right. they say, because we would carry some of our existential risks with us. We would carry our AI, we would carry our you know, sure. technological knowledge. But I guess the idea is that, number one, we'd be free from certain risks that are unique to Earth, and mm -hmm. number two, the more of us out there, mm -hmm. kind of the better. Yeah, um, the way that we are now and the way that we've always been as a species is that we are earthbound, right? We're just what, like whatever happens to Earth happens to humans. That's just the way it is because we can't leave Earth. If we can leave Earth, then if something happens to those of us back here on Earth, it's just like that guy who ate the mushroom and died and the rest of the guys were like, oh, well, let's not do that again. If something happens to the people back here on Earth, there will be people elsewhere in the universe 
to carry on the human species. So that's almost, it's a huge step, but that's really kind of almost step one right. in, in mitigating existential risk because there are more existential risks that we face rather than just the technology we're starting to develop. Things like asteroids coming along, and like the ones that wiped out the dinosaurs, or uh, super volcanic eruptions, gamma ray bursts from a collapsing star. Right. These things are really, really rare from what we can tell. But if we stay on Earth long enough, one of them will probably befall us. And if we're here while that happens, then that would be it for humanity, unless we've spread out into the universe. Right. You know, when I was trying to think about, okay, can you bring those two worlds together? The people that think about the future and mm -hmm. think about the technology and think about how to contain existential risk. Mm -hmm. and the people that are more focused on how we ought to live together and what you know what constitutes a good good life the survivalists are often thinking in that uh, what's mistakenly sometimes called darwinian mm -hmm. way but that's like everything is a competition of the the, the sure. fittest and look humanity has managed to evolve to this point and we must survive at all costs and whatever and when i think about that i think yes we must survive but if we don't evolve as a species if we don't do better as a species uh -huh. I don't care. It's the lesson of Bird Box, right? Like we, oh, which like, I haven't seen. But oh, you haven't. Feel well, free to spoil it. I, I, I won't yeah. spoil it, but you've just described Sandra Bullock's character when you described the survivalists. Like she's just so laser focused on surviving that she abandons and forgets her humanity. And yes, she's surviving. She's making her way, but she is barely human, you know, just in the contours of it. Right. We were talking earlier about types of porn, like fact porn and disaster porn. And I think survival porn is another one. I mean, there's just a lot of movies and a lot of mm -hmm. scenarios, like narratives, where people get really jazzed about survival for its own sake. Right. Beating the odds, you know, regardless of who you have to climb over or destroy to get there. Right, right. So, yeah, that's not something that I've found in the existential risk community. They're very much into human flourishing and thriving. And one of the things that the Future of Humanity Institute and a lot of the other uh, groups that are kind of related to it, like the Future of Life Institute, the focus is not entirely on mitigating existential risks. There's an at least equal focus on well, okay, so if we survive this, what are we going to do? And that promise of reaching technological maturity, if that is a real thing, which it seems pretty reasonable to believe it, it could be, what will the world be like? How do we make that really, really good? Because we could still survive, say, inventing AI and build ourselves an artificial general intelligence that could run the world for us as basically a god under our control, bring about a post-scarcity economy that every single person has everything that they want, that right. wealth is distributed basically equally among all people, and we're all just sharing and living the best life any one of us alive today could possibly imagine or hope for. But just inventing AGI that's capable of that doesn't mean that it's going to go that way, right? So we still have to think about if we survive, how we'll also flourish beyond that. How do we mitigate the transition? And then also, yeah, what do you do with people who don't particularly have any aspirations to make beautiful art or amazing music or any contribution whatsoever? Do those people just get to sit around and hardwire into whatever jacks their dopamine up or something like that? Right, like, like right, is right. there, what's the morality of and that? And who is gets there, to decide? Sure, yeah, like, yeah. like to this point, like when people scoff at 
addicts and the idea of addiction in our society, it's typically like they're not contributing to society. But how does that apply to a society where you don't have to contribute anything because everything's being given to you by an artificial general intelligence and the nanobots that work for it and nothing is expected from you? Can you just sit around in an amazing state of bliss all the time? You're not harming anybody and no one expects you to contribute anything. So what's the problem? Like, these are questions we're going to have to face, even if we do survive. So I think that idea that just gung-ho, bird-boxy kind of survival for survival's sake is not a prevalent mentality. The people who are thinking about this are thinking about the farther future, but they've also recognized that we've got this really challenging period that we're we're going into now to get to that farther future. I had... um once had Michio Kaku on this show and, wow. and that was in it, this chair. He was in that chair. That's amazing. He was in that very chair. But as compelling and inspiring as his vision is, and, and he's a very smart and very interesting guy, mm-hmm. my understanding of his understanding of the kind of the future of humanity mm-hmm. had a lot more to do with survival of the fittest. It was about success and competition mm-hmm. and rather than a comprehensive umbrella view of everyone should be lifted up equally right. kind of thing, it's the smart ones will be able to work it out. You know, no diss to him, but that was where he was coming from. You and, know? and, you know, I think like just based on history, that's it's tough to just kind of dismiss that out of hand. Like it, we could very easily go that way. And it seems like that's kind of the way we're going now. Like this right. to, to, I think, avert that, I would call that maybe even the default setting, it's going to take actual thought and planning and care to get us away from that point Yeah, to where we are kind of more in a, something of a utopian future than a Darwinian survival of the fittest future. It is a technological, a philosophical, and a spiritual project all, all in sure. one. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. Shall we see what the sure. next videos? I can't wait. Okay. I was right. really uh, thrown for a loop with the space toilet. Yeah, I don't know how far we went into toilets, but it did take us somewhere interesting. <laughs> What's cool about this one, I think, is that it's going to take us out of the external global realm and mm-hmm. more into the internal interpersonal, which is also of great interest to me. So the expert is Shane Parrish, and it's called Three Ways to See Misleading Emotions More Clearly. Often, we'll make decisions when we're in an emotional state. We'll make decisions at the end of the day when we're rushed. We'll make decisions after we're irritated by a colleague or pestered all day about something. One of the ways that we can alleviate that sort of burden is just to go for a walk. Does this decision need to be made right now? If I go for a walk, is that going to change things? If, if I wait till tomorrow morning, the, the old anecdote or the old advice to sleep on it actually has a meaningful impact on dampening our emotions. Our emotions spike and that's a signal to us that something's wrong or something's important to us. We often view sort of intensity as a gauge of how important those emotions are to us. You know, we'll do these things in the moment because we're emotional and then we sort of regret it, but then we also have to defend our actions, right? So we have this this sort of like dueling inside of our head where it's like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but yeah, I was really mad and I, you know, I needed to express myself. And so we sort of like justify our own behavior. It's really strange. We want to reduce the impact of those emotions. We want to reduce sort of what's going on in the current moment. We want to get a better perspective on the problem. And to get distance from a problem, it helps to go for a walk. It helps to take time away from the problem, to sleep on it, to look at it in the morning. Or what I often do is I mentally decide, here's my decision. 
now I'm going to sleep on it. Then I'll wake up in the morning and be like, how do I feel about that decision? Because I'll trick myself into having made it. And if I have regrets, that's a sign that I might want to think about that problem a lot more. And if I'm comfortable with that decision, then that's a sign that I'm, I'm probably on the right track. If I made the same decision when I'm emotionally engaged and when I'm not. But often you don't want to decide. You just want to delay that decision. Why do you have to make it now? Another way that we make bad decisions or that we trick ourselves into making bad decisions is that we just look for information that confirms to what we already believe. If people disagree with us, how can they be right? Because that means that we're not right. So our ego doesn't often let this information in. It doesn't process it. But what we want to do is what Charles Darwin used to do. We want to pull out a journal. And every time that something disconfirms with what we, we believe, what we know to be ourselves to be true, we want to make a note of it. And we want to start thinking about it. Because what we're really focused on is outcomes. We're not focused on being right. We're focused on being the best. How do we create the best outcome possible? And every time that something disconfirms with something that we think or we believe, that's an opportunity to learn. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. But to dismiss it out of hand without evaluating it is not doing ourselves justice towards outcomes. And finally, overconfidence is one of the other ways that we sort of lead ourselves astray. We take outsized risks. We believe that we have information that other people don't have, um, which causes us to be overconfident, to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. There's a couple of ways to address being overconfident. One is just to recall all the times you've failed. And if you haven't failed, then that's a problem. But often we, we're very confident. We, if you calibrate your decisions, if I keep a decision journal, for example, and I write down, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's why I think it's going to happen. And often we get the outcomes we want, but not for the reasons that we thought we were going to get. And it's an effective calibration on what you know. It's an effective calibration against your overconfidence because you realize that how much we don't actually know or how much we're right, and it's not for the right reasons. We might get the right outcome, but it's not for the reasons that we predicted that outcome would happen by. And another way to like sort of address overconfidence is just to have people check and balance you, right? Which is, no, I disagree with you. And if we keep track of when people disagree with us, is the opportunity for learning and exploring. Like, why is it you disagree? Is it you disagree with the variables that I think are relevant in this particular situation? Do you disagree with how I think those variables interact in this situation? Or do you disagree with my conclusion about what's going to happen? And once you start honing in on that, that's an opportunity for learning. And you're often not the expert that you think you are. One of the things that Shane Parrish pointed out that struck me also kind of dovetailed with something. I listened to your interview with Uval Noah. Uh, 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 yeah, Uval. Yeah, yeah. Uval. Okay. And he said that he meditates like two hours a day. And that guy must have 26 hour days then, because I can't imagine finding two hours a day any day to just sit there and meditate. That was precisely my thought. I, he said that to me and I was like, bro, you are, <laughs> you are flying all over the world. Yes. You are like Bill Gates's darling philosopher. What? Yeah. You, what are these two hours? He must be able to do it <laughs> while he's conversing or something. Like, I don't know how he does it. But Shane Parrish was mentioning that he keeps a journal for decision making and things like that. And like even that, where do you get the time? And, and, and mm. it occurs to me that 
one thing I've learned, I should say, is that if you don't take the time, it's not going to just magically appear for you. There is an, like more than enough kind of bullshit waiting to mm-hmm. metastasize to fill up yeah. any empty space in your calendar if you allow it. You know, back <laughs> in like the 50s and 60s, the popular culture was very clever. And, and one of the things that it came up with is something called Parkinson's law, which is this unnatural law like Murphy's law or whatever, that work expands to fill the time allotted. And it is made up and jokey, but it is so true. true. And if you take a project that you have three days to do, you will get it done in three days. If you have it five days to do, almost always it will take you five days. Something I think about too is that the culture that I am living in, this sort of New York City present day media world that that I'm a part of, Mm -hmm. and I think this is true for a lot of professionals, there's this expectation of projecting the appearance of busyness and stuff that looks like work at all times. Right. So, for example, like a big part of my job for this podcast that I, you know, made a sacrosanct rule about from the beginning was to read every book of every guest that comes on. So it's a weekly show. So wow. sometimes that's a book a week. Yeah, That is part of the work. Like that, without that, this show isn't, what it is. You know, if I hadn't listened to every episode of The End of the World, this show isn't what it could be. And so, that you know, it's a basic value to like carve out that time for what's important. Yeah, because if you don't, then very easily you will just, one interview will come and you haven't read the whole book or you just kind of skimmed it or whatever. And you're like, oh, that, that went okay. And, and yeah, maybe that's like, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so all of a sudden the, the work you're doing actually slips. But to be able to place a value on it like you are, and then to also specifically make arrangements so that the time is carved out so you can place a value on work. That's very, it's laudable. And it's also um, unusual, it feels like, because I, I feel like that appearance of work that you feel like you have to get across in the office, which is totally understandable, that is like almost a, a status symbol. Answering an email at 10 p.m. says, you know. Arriving earlier than everyone, leaving later than everyone. Exactly. You know. like, yeah. And that seems to be the culture. And it's not necessarily like we're doing more work. We're just working all the time. But in the case of you and in, in the podcast that you're putting together, if you go listen to the episodes that you're doing, like it is good work. You're creating conversations. You're having amazing conversations. The people listening to you are getting smarter. So there is value to what you're doing. So the the time that you are carving out for yourself is... It makes the show substantially different from what it might otherwise absolutely been. You're lucky to be able to do that for a living because that doesn't seem to be the case across the board. It's generally. not my only living and it's also the reading time is not during working hours. Gotcha. You know? So I have to squeeze it in when I can right. and it's on the subway and it's all, all over the place. But yeah, it, these things require, as you're saying, going against the grain or swimming upstream, you know? Which is, but it's weird that you have to work harder to get the quality of work done in a culture where everybody's working all the time. Everyone's on call 24-7 because we all have smartphones with our work email. Right, right. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about productivity because Mm -hmm. the obsession of the culture with productivity, which, as you say, is at an all-time high, Mm -hmm. means that everyone is constantly thinking in terms of productivity, which is sometimes antithetical to quality. Yeah, and I think it's become status to make the idea more palatable. But I think it really grew out of a psychic scar that America suffered 
as a result of the recession, so many people lost their jobs. And then even worse, so many people were not able to find jobs when they, you know, after a while, they're still having trouble finding jobs. The gig economy kind of grew out of that. There became this mentality of like, oh yeah, you work, man. And you look like you work all the time and you check your email 24 seven, you don't actually take a real vacation. Like that, that, There's that a threat. seems it's to a be bit, a relic. There was a threat that embedded itself in everyone's psyche. Yeah. Like, and that I might like, lose my job. I might not get the job. Yeah. Whatever. Because during that, during the recession, when the people who were still employed, there were fewer people to do the work. And then since those people had kept their jobs throughout the recession, the people who came back into the workforce were like, oh, well, this has changed. This is how it is now, I guess. And so now that's the culture. And I feel like I, I haven't read any papers on it or any, read any books, but just from having lived through this experience, it seems like that's directly traceable back to the recession because I don't remember it being like this before then. Interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that at all. And I I mean that's, you know, people trying to trying to survive, you know. For sure. But for it to be then taken and turned into a culture and not like, oh, okay, we're all making trillions of dollars again. It's fine. Everybody calm back down. Instead to say, no, keep working and let's get more people in here and work even more and let's see what we can really get this machine to do that's so exploitive and abusive and it's having a real impact on America's psyche, I think. I think it's one of the reasons why the average person is really angry. And when you when you set somebody off, it's easier than ever to set them off. It's psychologically harmful, and it's also a sort of self-perpetuating culture machine mm -hmm. that is spitting out. If nobody is able to get off of that hamster wheel, because that's the hamster wheel that's available, right. you know, that it's just going to continue to reproduce itself. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And if that's the way it is, if the, everybody else is doing that, then you have to as well. You can't say, well, I'm going to do a third of that. You want to live, you want to, you want to succeed in and more than anything else, you want to make sure you're not totally screwed, if you will, when you retire. That's what everybody's doing, is making sure that they can survive when they retire. And that's so important. And at the same time, I just feel like for our basic well-being and for fundamentally what it means to be human, individuals need to get pissed off at the realization that companies observing this phenomenon have taken advantage of yeah. it, continue to take advantage of it, continue to sell it back to us. Right. as a positive thing, you know? And we are pissed off. There's no there's <laughs> no getting around that, but it, it's very much directed away from that and into squabbles among ourselves that are keeping us divided. One other thing that I got from the Shane Parrish video, though, and I don't want to say like any of his advice is bad. It's great advice, but it's like, where do you find the time to do this, you know, to, to keep a decision journal? I will say one thing that I've tried that I can tell you works is going for a walk. Mm -hmm. I read a book. I can't remember what the name of the book was, but it was really thin, just, you know, less than a hundred pages. But this guy had gone to the trouble of researching what happens in the brain when you walk. And he basically came up with this hypothesis that walking in and of itself activates the brain in a way that the brain is not normally activated by anything else. And it's really conducive to reflective thought. Right. Which is why we kind of associate just going for a walk with thinking because it almost is like it, it triggers it, it activates it. So I think he had a really good point that going for a walk helps you kind of hash things out. 
according to this book I read, because the brain is activated by this right, left, steady movement. And there's this whole group of people over in England. I, oh, I wish I could remember what they were called. Amblers or ramblers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, I'm, I'm their, their premise is humans are not meant to go faster than three and a half miles an hour. <laughs> that, like, that is how we're <laughs> meant to experience the world. That's what we evolved to do. Not ride a bike, not ride a motorcycle, not fly in a plane. None of that. We're supposed to walk. And I'm sure they take trains all over to get from point A to point B. But their point is, is like, if you're just kind of out there moving around, don't jog, don't trot, walk and take it all in. That's interesting. And if you can find time to go for a walk, it def I will attest, it definitely does help in decision making and to calm you down. Because I think that is the point in, in making decisions, as he was saying, like, it's supposed to be from a calm place, not an emotional place. Yeah, I mean, most of what we do these days, it's either, you know, in the context of the world we were just <clears throat> talking about, we either are producing or we are distracting ourselves, you know, right. w watching TV show or whatever, unwinding, mm -hmm. etc. Yeah. But in, I in either case, we're not allowing the mind to just kind of do its own thing. We're right. not. But I, when you were talking, I was also thinking about I practice something like ambling <laughs> to the annoyance of my fellow New Yorkers whenever commuting on the subway, uh -huh. like, which oh, is, yeah. I don't meditate two hours a day, but I do meditate. And since I've been doing that, I'm much more present. I'm not right. just rushing off to wherever I'm going all yeah. the time, you know? Yeah. And so I'll be in the subway in rush hour and I just walk, you know, I walk to where <laughs> I'm going, right? And it's amazing to observe the way other people behave in relation uh -huh. to bodies around them. Like they just, they're just zooming ahead. It's not just that they're in a hurry. Like people are in a hurry for no reason. Yes. You know, yeah. they, they go running to the train and knocking people out of the way. Mm -hmm. And you know that nine out of 10 of them aren't late for work. Right. And they literally just don't see the body that's right in front of them. And I think rushing is a setting for yeah. sure. I know it is for me as well. Like I could find, my wife got me a little meditation stool it's like you know yeah, yeah. about six inches from the ground Wooden a little wood stool, yeah. just just enough for your butt to sit in and you just kneel and and think and she's like you really should give this a shot i think it would be very helpful to you i know i could find 10 15 minutes a day every day i'm not claiming that for myself like i'm saying it is important to do and if you don't claim it it's not going to come and i'm living proof that that's the truth if you don't <laughs> claim that time for yourself it's not going to happen well you don't yet see the enough of a value in it or you'd be doing it probably <laughs> i mean i know it is there intellectually but there's some part of me that's like no nah, i could be doing something else you know people who take naps yeah i can't take a nap during the day it's like there's too much to do but i also realize is there that much to do what would i be missing josh's wife send him on a 10-day meditation retreat <laughs> block off his time make him go He'll, he'll never stop. <laughs> Josh Clark, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Me too. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. The End of the World is a 10-part podcast series. It is illuminating and indeed inspiring. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jason. Well, that's it for The End of the World for the moment. I'll be back next week with something less apocalyptic but hopefully no less worth your time. In the meantime, if you want to stay in touch, feel free to go to jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com and sign up for my mailing list or contact list or whatever it's called on there. 
I don't send things out very often. You will not be spammed or anything, but when I do, you'll be sure to get them. Be well and see you next week.